Let's talk politics with National Washington Post columnist Philip Bump, who I'm pleased to welcome back to this program. Philip, how are you today, sir? I'm well. How are you? If I complained, I'd be an ingrate, and I'm doing well. Glad to have you on. A lot of politics to talk about every day these days. We're in that season, but we are really in that season officially tomorrow, Wednesday night, uh, the first of uh, these uh, presidential debates, at least the ones Republicans are having. Joe Biden uh, is not doing any debates. Uh, but uh, Republicans are going to have uh, have a number of these between now and then. Uh, Donald Trump has said he will not participate in tomorrow night's debate. There are eight other candidates uh, participating. Let me just start with a series of questions about that. One, what does it mean for those who are on the stage that Donald Trump will not be on the stage? I think it's a disadvantage. I mean, it gives them the opportunity to get more speaking time, which is always good when you're in a debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, almost always good, <laughs> depending on how you fare. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it does mean that they don't have the opportunity to confront Donald Trump uh, directly. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that a lot of them have been fumbling with is they can't figure out how to actually take on Donald Trump in a way that doesn't alienate his base. Being able to talk to him directly probably would have given him a chance to do that. But Donald Trump sidestepped it entirely. How do you take Donald Trump on? This is a question we'll talk about perhaps later in this hour, Philip, because I've had my own issues with this about the way our profession, the way the media is trying to figure out how to cover cover Donald Trump this time around. We'll talk about that. There's a whole lot to unpack, as you can imagine, in that regard about how we cover him. Uh, But for those on the stage tomorrow night, those eight Republicans, how do you take him on? Um, what advice, if you were if you were asked to give advice, you're not doing that, um, but you are a columnist, so you have these kinds of thoughts and ideas. If you were going to take Donald Trump on in, in, in abstention, how do you do that effectively? Because Chris Christie and others are trying to figure that out tomorrow night. Yeah, I don't know that there's a good way to do it, right? I mean, like, that sounds like a cop-out, but you know, we've seen two strategies that have been deployed. We've seen the Ron DeSantis strategy, which is to generally agree with Donald Trump's politics and agree with his efforts to, you know, cast the Justice Department as biased and so on and so forth. Um, that that hasn't worked, right? You know, he's he remains in second place behind Donald Trump. He's, he's a lot of Trump supporters' second choice. So if Donald Trump dropped dead tomorrow, Ron DeSantis would be well positioned. Uh, but, you know, as long as Donald Trump stays healthy, it, it's not doing many good. But then we see someone like Chris Christie, and Chris Christie's going out and saying Donald Trump's a con man, Donald Trump is, you know, lying to you, he deserves to have these indictments, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and he's gaining no traction in the polls. He's doing okay in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. uh, where that sort of independent message can work. Uh, but beyond that, he, he's, you know, he's, he's in the single digits in national polling. Uh, so it may simply be that there isn't a way to do it. There isn't a way to both criticize Donald Trump, expose him. You know, there have been these efforts to say, you know, with Donald Trump, we're going to keep losing and losing and losing. Republicans just don't believe it. You know, mm-hmm. you, you know, there may be evidence in 2018 and 2020 and 2022 that, that that's the case. Republicans just don't believe it. And if they don't believe it, you're, you're not going to be able to convince them of it. And there just doesn't seem to be that path that, that these candidates can walk. When we come forward, uh, there's a lot to talk about uh, in this hour with uh, Philip Bump, National uh, Washington Post columnist. Uh, I want to come straight away to this question, and that is um, what Donald Trump will be doing uh, tomorrow night. Uh, what we know is that Donald Trump, in a pre-taped conversation with Tucker Carlson, who is now posting stuff on X, and that raises a whole other set of uh, questions we could get into about this relationship with Donald Trump and Elon Musk, um, But tomorrow night, while the debate is going on, uh, we are told that Donald Trump will be seen in a pre-taped interview with Tucker Carlson. So they're going to up in what's happening on Fox News. Uh, You you see all these dots connect, right? Fox News fired Tucker. 
Tucker is over here now. He's got an exclusive interview with Donald Trump. He's going to run during the middle of the Fox News interview. Oh, this is juicy. Uh, that's happening tomorrow night on the Donald Trump front. But there's also, there's also a lot to, to unpack about what Democrats expect from tomorrow night, what they hope uh, to get from tomorrow night. I assume that they're hoping that you're going to see these Republicans take a whole lot of unpopular positions tomorrow night in this debate. And what that will mean for their fortunes, President Biden uh, is now dropping about $25 million on campaign ads. So he's starting already running campaign ads. Uh, again, a lot to get to in this hour. When we come forward on Tavis Smiley with Philip Bump. Seeking the truth. The truth. Speaking the truth. The truth. This, this is the Tavis is the Smiley, Smiley Show. May first daily in the Mert Park, Los Angeles, California. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. All right, Philip Bunt, we all know that Donald Trump will not be on the stage tomorrow night in the first of many Republican debates, uh, but he will be featured in a pre-taped uh, conversation with Tucker Carlson, we are told, uh, on X. Um, how do you read that? What do you make of that? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, the whole overlap between uh, Donald Trump and Fox News and the, and the tension between them over the course of the past few weeks has been fascinating. Uh, Fox News executives went to his club in New Jersey to sit down with him, try and get him to do the debate because they want, you know, obviously people tuning in to, to watch, uh, you know, including his supporters. Um, and he's, you know, poking him in the eye by going, going to Tucker Carlson. And Tucker Carlson is going to give a fawning interview, undoubtedly. You know, mm-hmm. he has proven time and again that, that he is not interested in, um, you know, pressing his allies on their claims. Uh, and so it'll be an opportunity for both of them to sort of stick at the Fox News. Um, I suspect it probably won't actually get that much attention. Uh, you know, it, it depends on what Donald Trump says, obviously. Uh, but I think that probably more people will tune into the, the debate itself than this, this sort of sideshow. Wow, you believe that? I, 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 when you come on the program, uh, I, I usually uh, am in uh, lockstep with you in the way you sort of see things. But you miss me on that one. So you really don't think that this conversation tomorrow night um, with Donald Trump is going to get that much attention, that much traction? I mean, it's going to get some, but I think that when you talk about viewership of a debate on Fox News with Fox News' audience, and I think there's going to be a lot of Trump supporters who tune into it. You know, these Tucker Carlson Twitter things, they they get a lot of views in the sense that, you know, people scroll past them on the timeline, but the numbers really aren't that robust. There's mm-hmm. really not that many people who sit down and watch these things. Who wants to sit and stare at their phone for an hour? You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> it's, just, it's just not not how it tends to play out. So, yeah, I think that the debate will probably attract more attention uh, just in terms of actual viewership. Uh, than this, yep. this Trump Carlson. So, th- so this this is a nice segue into the way the media covers Donald Trump. So anywhere you look at this, this Donald Trump Tucker Carlson thing tomorrow night is a sideshow, and I'm being I'm being kind, calling it a sideshow, not a circus. Uh, it's a sideshow. Um, no matter what one thinks of the Republican candidates, how good or bad they are, uh, tomorrow night is a legitimate, sanctioned presidential debate. Um, to decide who the nominee of the GOP will be. Donald Trump's thing, once again, with Tucker Carlson is a sideshow. And yet I can assure you that our profession, certainly the TV uh, media, will be falling over themselves tomorrow night to put as much coverage of the Donald Trump conversation as they will have of this legitimate GOP presidential debate. I'll take it a step farther than that. I would venture to guess that when all is said and done, and somebody like, you know, uh, uh, fair uh, looking at how the media uh, handles these political issues. Somebody's going to do some research on this. And I'm going to jump out front right now, Philip Bump, and, and, and guess that when all is said and done, the media will have given Donald Trump more coverage from that Tucker debate. So you're right. 
Many people may, they may not watch it for an hour staring at their phones, to use your phrase, but I'm going to guess that when all is said and done, Donald Trump will get as much coverage by the national TV networks as will a legitimate presidential Republican debate. That's my that's that's my guess. You want you want to take that bet? Um, well, it's sort of hard to measure. So I'm, I, I'd be happy to take it back because I don't know we'd be able to resolve it. Quite <laughs> honestly, but, you know, I, but I, you know, look, Donald Trump is is almost certainly going to win the nomination, mm-hmm. right? You know, like you know, to, to the extent that we have Doug Burgum and Mike Pence and you know and Issa Hutchinson arguing about stuff, mm-hmm. like there's a reason that should get less attention, which is that none of those people is going to be the Republican nominee for president. Right. It's also the case that Donald Trump has often sort of wandered into these tar pits where. You know, he get, gets into the conversation with someone he considers a friend. He ends up saying something that's way over the line because, you know, he, he's not reserved. And so it also may be the case that Donald Trump ends up saying something totally wild that deserves attention and deserves, you know, uh, a, a level of scrutiny uh, that we wouldn't necessarily apply to the debate. I mean, consider that yesterday there was this news that broke about how Donald Trump wants to really crack down on immigration in a way mm-hmm. that, you know, even it surpasses what he did when he was president. That's right in Tucker Carlson's wheelhouse. This is the, you know, this is the guy who is advocating great replacement theory. Of course, he's going to try and elevate Donald Trump's most strident right-wing claims about immigration. And that's newsworthy because the guy's probably going to be the, the Republican nominee. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, I think that watching the debate, more people will watch the debate, but I think it's probably the case that there probably will be more news coming out of the, the, the Trump Carlson. Oh, now, now we're back. Now we're back uh, in, in sync again, Philip. <laughs> <That, that, laughs> I, I, I figured we'd get there. Here's my point. I'm only, I'm only, I'm only raising this issue. Donald Trump sure. is smart enough to know that if he wants to get more coverage than the Republican debate, he's got to say something outrageous. And so I can assure you that in this Tucker conversation tomorrow, he's going to say something outrageous that the media will feel uh, obliged to cover. And when all is said and done, his not being there is not in any way going to impact or slow down the media coverage he's going to get. He may even get more as a result. Uh, again, uh, this is the way that the media uh, has been uh, covering him uh, for these last six or seven years, which, which leads me to ask a just very specific question and get your read on this as a, a national columnist for the Washington Post. Um, the media, the audience has heard my take on this, I suspect, more than once. I have been very, very, very disappointed, disenchanted. Um, I, I could add other words to that list with the way uh, the media writ large, the mainstream media has gone about covering Donald Trump from the first time he announced he was going to run for office, you know, all those years ago now. Um, that said, what's your read on the way the media has covered Donald Trump? And have we learned anything from these past, you know, six years about how to better cover him, whatever better means this time around? Mm-hmm. I think we've definitely learned things. You know, I mean, even the Washington Post itself has adjusted the way in which we treat Donald Trump to accommodate the fact that he's so often dishonest, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think that fundamentally one of the issues that, that Donald Trump interacts with the media in a way that is completely independent with wanting to present accurate information. He just wants attention. I mean, to your point about how he's going to, you know, he may say something outrageous to Tucker Carlson to try and uh, get attention. Consider that on Thursday, he's going down to Fulton County in Georgia yep. in order to uh, be arraigned, right? He's doing that on Thursday because it comes right after the debate. He mm-hmm. wants to step on the debate media attention, even if it's him being arrested, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He'd rather have that attention on himself <laughs> than have it beyond the debate. This is the way he's always approached it. And this is abnormal, right, for a lot of reasons. It's abnormal for a person in general, certainly for a presidential candidate. And I'm not sure there is a way or there is a clean line to be drawn between 
the Donald Trump who does these things for attention and presenting to the American public information about what Donald Trump is doing in a way that doesn't reinforce those tendencies. I, I will say this. He is deeply unpopular, you know, beyond Republicans and, you know, Trump supporters in general. A lot of Americans view him very skeptically. And I think that skepticism is a function of media coverage, which is accurate and, you know, draws attention to the things he does and says that people don't agree with. Uh, and so I, I don't think it's the case. You know, I think it certainly was in 2015, 2016, the media absolutely gave him space in a way that, that was helpful to him and unhelpful to uh, you know, informing people. But I think we sort of changed it. And I think that's reflected to some extent in the fact that, you know, overall people look at him and are like, you know, th- this guy is doing things that I don't agree with. To your point about uh, the fact that people view Donald Trump uh, with skepticism, there's a, a new article out this morning on Rachel, uh, Rachel Maddow's blog, uh, written by a guy named Steve Bennon. Uh, and the headline is simply the following poll Trump voters trust him more than family members faith leaders. Trump voters trust him more than family members and faith leaders. So who are you talking about in that skeptic in that skepticism circle you referenced a moment ago? Yeah, I'm talking about not Trump supporters. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, and, and I and when I when I made those comments, I carved them out. Yeah, yeah this is that those findings, which come from a CBS News poll conducted by YouGov, are really striking. It's not, I don't think anyone's surprised by it, but they're striking that, mm-hmm. you know, seven in 10 Republicans say that they view Donald Trump as a trustworthy source of information. And I think, and I wrote about this yesterday, I think this goes back to the way in which he appeared on the scene in 2015, right? Mm-hmm. So what happens? He announces in June 2015 and immediately starts saying garbage that he picked up on Fox News and Breitbart News about immigrants being criminals and all these things that are just flatly untrue. And you don't hear, you know, it was understood that those appeals to the right wing base, that Republicans are tuning in the Breitbart and Fox News and eating that stuff up. But establishment people like Jeb Bush, they're not going to go out and say that stuff because they know it's not true. And they think it's going to hurt them uh, with, you know, non-white voters, with Hispanic voters and things like that. Mm-hmm. So Donald Trump comes out and he says these things, these untrue things that are popular in the right wing conservative media. And then everyone's like, yeah, this guy, finally, this guy's telling the truth. And so it was because he was amplifying the lies that they were already consuming that they started to see him as a truth teller. And then that helped. And they viewed every time he'd get into these debates where he'd say something false that was popular, they'd be like, yeah, this is the only guy who's saying, who, you know, who's keeping it real and saying what's true, even though it wasn't. And now we get to this point where seven in 10 Trump supporters trust him <laughs> as as someone who tells the truth, more so than they trust family and friends, religious leaders, or, or other officials. Yeah, more than their family members, uh, more than their friends, more than their faith leaders. Let me connect that dot then to this dot. You raised his turning himself in uh, in Fulton County, uh, the Fannie Willis mm-hmm. uh, indictment. Uh, he turns himself in on Thursday, the day after the debate. Again, all this is choreographed. It's all it's all sequenced, as you as you made quite clear. And so tomorrow night, he's in this Tucker Carlson interview pre-tape that will go up against the, the the Fox News debate featuring these eight Republican candidates. He's going to steal attention from that. And then on Thursday, he turns himself in in Atlanta. There are a couple of things I want to talk about regarding that. The first thing is, though, how you think he plays the spectacle that is going to be made of his turning himself in in Atlanta. We all know the way that he and everybody else who's been indicted has expressed such disdain and disregard for Fannie Willis, who happens to be a black woman. Let's let's, let's not lose sight of that. Um, So here he is turning himself in on Thursday. He's going to use that to his advantage. The question is, in what ways? 
Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what he does physically, right? So we had the first two indictments, the one in New York City and the one in Miami, mm-hmm. both of which occurred near places where he had properties. So he could fly in and he had time on the ground there in a way that he didn't really in D.C., sort of hostile terrain, right? So in New York, he goes to Trump Tower and, you know, he does this big spectacle and it's the first one and, you know, he, he, he does all these various things. And in Miami, he goes out to the restaurant afterward, the Cuban restaurant, like shaking hands and, you know, making the campaign stop. We didn't see that in D.C. in part because he knew he'd encounter protesters and so on and so forth. And I think he probably won't do a lot of that tomorrow, in part because he understands that this is old news. It's mm-hmm. his fourth indictment by now, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, and second, because he doesn't want to, you know, Atlanta is not a place where a lot of people are going to be standing on the side of the road clapping at him, right? Yeah. That said, absolutely on social media, he's going to keep going back to this idea that he is a target of reverse racism, that Fannie Wells is out to get him because he's a white guy, because this plays into the white grievance that undergirds everything about his politics. Right? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is why he's been successful from the start, playing the white grievance. So absolutely on social media, that's, I think, going to be the tack that he takes. Yeah, and continues to take it because he has already. Yeah, and that's why I underscored the point about her being a black woman. You can rest assured right. that, that, that race is about to be a central figure, uh, and it hasn't been. And, and, and interestingly, he didn't he didn't he didn't play the race card as it were with Alvin Bragg in D, in in, uh, in New York. The way he absolutely is going to play it with Fannie Willis in uh, in Fulton County. So just get ready for that. Uh, we'll be talking about it, I'm sure, in the coming days. But race is about to raise its ugly uh, head. That specter of race is going to be front and center once again uh, after tomorrow when Donald after Thursday, rather, once he turns himself in. That said, one one final thing about 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 Fulton County, uh, and this just struck me, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only person. I've, I've been black my whole life, uh, and I I have seen uh, more African Americans and others who get in trouble with the law, whose bail is significantly above two hundred thousand dollars. When I saw that number. I'm thinking of all that Donald Trump is accused of trying to overturn an election, trying to overthrow the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of these counts he's facing, 18 other people, it seems, pulled into this mess with him. This is a mess. I mean, like nothing we've ever seen in this country. And his bail is two hundred thousand dollars. Uh, yeah, that, that number, mean, that, that, that number, that number, yeah, not, not like I say either. I'm, I'm just, I, I'm not even sure what I expected you to say. I just wanted to put a final <laughs> point on that because it, it just, the number just, I mean, more than anything else, the number just jumped out at me for all that he's up against. His bail is $200,000 and you know how bail works, right? You only pay a percentage of that, right? So right. for, for 20 grand, he gets to go home. I mean, <laughs> Again, I don't know what to say about it, Philip. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm stumping myself here, but it just jumped out at me. I guess my question, I guess the only question I could ask is, did that, did that number say or do anything to you when you saw it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think that you, when you have a former president who's trying to subvert the results of an election, you, you would expect to see some sort of measure of the severity of that. I mean, I will say that. You know, obviously, it's more than the other people who were charged there, which you know, for what that's worth, which isn't a whole lot. But mm-hmm. also, it carried with it one of the one of the terms that was included in there is there was there were sanctions on him speaking out about the case, which mm-hmm. are sort of interesting, right? And we've seen some some hints at that in some of these other cases. But there really is this idea that he needs to be curtailed, and the things he's saying about the case and about the prosecution, so on and so forth, really are things that need to be uh, have an eye kept on them. The other people, because co-defendants didn't face that same sort of uh, potential for sanction, and so that by that itself, 
I think is probably more of a constraint. You know, even if you put his bail at two billion dollars, right? He's mm-hmm. still well, maybe two billion is a little high, but you know, <laughs> he's got a lot of money. You know, yeah. he's, he's not as rich as he said. He's got a lot of money, so the bail is never going to be a problem. It's those constraints. That's what's going to be interesting to see if that he can actually adhere to. Yeah, and we'll see if he honors those constraints. And if he doesn't honor those exactly. constraints, we will see then <clears throat> what happens to him uh, or not. Uh, if he just runs right through, uh, crashes through all the constraints they're trying to put on him. All right, that's the Republicans. When we come forward, Philip Bump, National Washington Post columnist, uh, the other side, a lot of news about Democrats, including the president, we want to talk about. Uh, on Tavis Smiley. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can you dig it? Come on! Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley, a national Washington Post comments, Philip Bump. Um, And uh, delighted to have you tuned in to our program in this hour. We talked a lot about uh, the uh, GOP debate, the first debate tomorrow night. Eight candidates, Donald Trump will not be there in case you just tuned in, bringing you up to speed here. We've been talking about that. So uh, the, the, the official uh, debate uh, season uh, kicks off tomorrow night once again. Uh, with these eight Republicans on stage, uh, Donald Trump will be talking to Tucker Carlson in a pre-taped uh, interview, we are told, that will broadcast around the same time. <laughs> so he wants to kind of steal the thunder from those who are who are on stage tomorrow night. The question now, Philip, is what Democrats are hoping and expecting from tomorrow night. Once again, the presumptive Republican nominee, Donald Trump, will not be on stage, but I assume that the Democrats are hoping that what we're going to see tomorrow night are a bunch of Republicans taking some very, very unpopular positions uh, right about now, particularly in light of some of these recent Supreme Court decisions. Um, what's the best that Democrats can hope for tomorrow night? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, this is one of those opportunities in which uh, the, the parties, in this case, or the Republican Party, is going to be competing with itself to move to the edge, right? You know, we saw this in the 2020 Democratic debates. Uh, the Democrats were arguing with each other about who would be more progressive and so on and so forth. You know, a lot of those debates ended up not meaning a whole lot since mm-hmm. the, the Democrats didn't have the power to affect change. Uh, but I think one of the things the Democrats are hoping for is that the Republicans will really articulate sort of a shared uh, consensus about policy and about uh, uh, priorities, uh, which will then they'll be able to then use to say, hey, look, the Republicans are, you know, stridently anti-abortion or they want to, you know, cut back on Medicare and Social Security or any of these other arguments that they can they can then use. Because, you know, essentially tomorrow night is the party establishing what the party stands for, which the Democrats hope they can they can then position negatively. So um, speaking of Democrats, so the president obviously is is uh, uh, playing chess as well, trying to make sure he makes the right moves uh, right about now. And so he has a, a new ad that they're spending about twenty five million dollars on um, a new ad that is um, uh, focusing on his stewardship of the economy. Uh, that ad is going to run for about 16 weeks uh, in battleground states, including Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Uh, the campaign is also placing ads in Hispanic and African-American media in those states. Um, and um, this represents, we were told, the largest and earliest buy, the largest and earliest buy by re-election campaign ever uh, certainly in black and Hispanic media, that gives you some sense uh, of the concerns that the Biden administration has about shoring up its base uh, within black and brown communities. Um, that's the data. How do you read it, Philip Bump? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think that this is 
Uh, this is an unusual step for a campaign to be taking. I think it's uh, it's in keeping with what the Biden administration has tried to do for some time, which is really turn attention to the fact that the economy is not doing badly and certainly not doing as badly as some people had feared. Uh, you know, there's this sort of uh, general narrative and a sense out there of pessimism about the national scene. If you look at polling, it's fascinating. There's this big divide between how people feel about how they themselves are doing and how they think the country's doing. People mm. feel like they themselves are generally doing okay. The country's not doing well. And I think what Biden's trying to do is get out there and say, hey, actually, the country is doing well, and it's because of these policies that I enacted. And I think he's partly trying to do this now because he can, A, get attention for it, uh, simply by virtue of, you know, just doing it. Uh, but second, because he knows that next year he's likely to be running against Donald Trump. And the idea that a Biden-Trump contest will come down to a lot of nuanced policy debates uh, is, is probably not going to bear fruit. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you read the fact specifically that he is launching this early, uh, again, trying to speak to Hispanic and African-American voters? Yeah, I mean, I think this, too, is not particularly surprising given what polling has shown. One of the things that Democrats are concerned about is that there is an opportunity that's created uh, among non-white voters, among black and Hispanic and Asian voters, uh, for Republicans to sort of move in, that, that, that those groups have been so fervently, you know, so so supportive of Democratic candidates for so long, and the Republicans see an opportunity there. There's a very slight shift um, among those groups between 2016 and 2020 in favor of Donald Trump. It's not clear that that has continued substantially. Hispanics have moved a little bit more to the right in 2022, for example, according to, to research. Uh, but the, the, the Biden campaign recognizes that they need to keep turnout and hopefully margins up among black and Hispanic voters in order for him to be successful. And so they're moving early to try and make sure they're doing that. We were talking earlier, Philip, I was just digging it, trying to dig it back out again. So much paper on this desk mm-hmm. in front of me with all this breaking news today. Um, we were just talking earlier about this, uh, this new CBS poll that fi- found that Trump voters trust him more than family members and faith leaders. They see him as a more reliable source for the truth than their friends, their relatives, and their clergy. Um, you'll take my point here. You would never see a poll like that about Joe Biden, <laughs> that, 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 that Biden supporters trust him more than they trust their friends, their relatives, and their faith leaders. You see where I'm going with this. If Donald Trump is, is, uh, is, is, um, is causing creating this kind of outrageous polling about how they feel about him, then one could take that to mean that they are excited about his candidacy and the turnout, as we all, turnout always matters. My sense is, and this election more than any other, turnout is really going to make the difference. We didn't even talk about third-party candidates yet, but the turnout mm-hmm. is going to be uh, critical in this election. And if if, if Trump's followers are, are, are sycophantish at that level, uh, and we know that Biden support, according to the polling, is a little soft. Well, that's that, that that's not the best frame, if you follow my point. Sure. No, you're right. And this is you know part of what we we're just discussing is that that the Biden campaign wants to get people to feel more enthusiastic about him. I think that one of the things the Biden campaign is sort of banking on, and there was this report recently that that Barack Obama specifically intervened to say, "Hey, man." You know, you, you can't count on this. But in 2020, the reason that Joe Biden won wasn't Joe Biden, it was Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Republicans came out to vote for Donald Trump and Democrats came out to vote against Donald Trump. 
Biden absolutely is hoping, to your point, that Democrats will do the same thing in 2024. They'll come out to vote against Donald Trump, assuming that's who the nominee is. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he has to deal with this idea that back in 2020, Biden was a sort of unknown quantity. He was seen as optimistic. He was seen as, you know, being able to not be Donald Trump and be successful. And you can never live up to the the ideals of the electorate entirely. But Joe Biden, you know, a lot of Democrats are kind of like, eh, about Joe Biden, doesn't think he's done that great a job. He needs to get them re-engaged. He needs to get them re-excited about it. And I think that's part of the reason why he's going up early, too. Yep. Um, a moment ago, you, uh, you you said that uh, you kind of slid this in there, assuming that he's the nominee. You're talking about Donald Trump, assuming that he's the nominee. Right. Um, nobody even utters that phrase these days. Everybody believes that he is the presumptive Republican nominee. I'm not sure you feel differently. I only come back to that point. Uh, your phrase, your phraseology, assuming that he's the nominee, to ask this question, and that is at this point, four indictments in, four indictments in, can you see anything that would preclude him from being the nominee? Yeah, sure, he could drop dead, right? I mean, he's an old, he's an old person. You know, I don't mean to be flipping about it, but you know, you know, could like this dead. could happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's pretty clear the indictments aren't going to have an effect. Yeah. You know, there was polling that was done in Iowa. Uh, by this really, really very good polling company. They went into the field. They're asking people about their views of the Iowa caucus. You know, Donald Trump's doing better than DeSantis. Then the indictment drops in Georgia. And the next day they go back into the field and Trump's lead has grown, right? Two thirds Mm -hmm. of people in Iowa don't think he's committed any serious crime. These things are not having an effect. It's very unlikely that they're going to have an effect before voting starts next year, in part because the trials are going to start by then. Uh, So, yeah, I don't think that's going to do it. I don't think there's anything that's going to come up People are so invested in, you know, so invested in seven, 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 ten, seven, ten, seven, ten of them trust him to provide them accurate information of his supporters, right? Like, what's going to shake them of that? Nothing. Yes, there could be something else that happens, some, you know, deus ex machina, as they say, that, that affects Donald Trump so he can't actually run next year. Other than that, though, I don't know what the path is for him not to be the nominee. Um, When we come forward, there are a number of interesting things, very interesting things that Philip Bump has been writing about of late as a National Washington Post columnist. I want to probe some of that when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Sounds different. This is Tavis Smiley. This is Tavis Smiley in conversation with Philip Bump, a National Washington Post columnist. Um, Philip, I mentioned a moment ago there are a number of things. Of course, I'm reading your stuff all the time in the Post. There are a number of things you've written about lately that I want to sort of probe. Um, one of them, speaking of this uh, this uh, rematch, uh, as it were, uh, between uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump in 2024, if, as we expect, all these things align the way they are appearing to align at the moment, so you got two old white guys running against each other, but it could be that young voters make the difference. Two old white guys running, uh, but young voters could, in fact, make the difference. And I saw a piece you wrote uh, pretty interestingly uh, about Generation X. Uh, say a word about that, if you will, please. Sure. So Generation X, of which which I'm a member, we're not actually young anymore. We like to think we are. Someone called me middle-aged a few months ago and it really shook my, shook my world. That's funny. Uh, but yeah, I mean, one, one of the things that we've done, and you and I have spoken about, about the book I wrote earlier this year, that really looks at the transition of power from the baby boom to younger Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, millennials themselves aren't even that young anymore. Right? They, the oldest millennials are now in their 40s. Uh, but it absolutely is the case that these younger generations, in part because they are more heavily black and Hispanic and Asian than older generations, are more likely to vote Democratic. And so one of the questions that emerges around 2024, and this, again, goes back to what we are just talking about, uh, is the extent to which they make up a larger part of the electorate. 
uh, one of the big shifts from 2016 to 2020 was that the silent generation and older, people older than the baby boomer, which actually, uh, you know, this is Joe Biden's generation, Mm -hmm. made up half as much of the electorate as they did in 2016, in 2020. And that by itself helps explain why Joe Biden lost. And so the question is, yes, Gen X, there was this sort of the speculation that maybe Gen X was the Trumpiest generation. It's not the case. The, the, the generations that are most loyal to Donald Trump's politics are the oldest generations, and those most hostile to his politics are the younger generations. And so the question really is, to what extent is 2024 shaped by younger Americans coming out to vote more heavily than they have in the past? Mm. Um, it's a powerful, a powerful question, and I, I like the frame because um, the only old guy that I can think of right now who had any real success with that—he didn't win—but was you know Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders' right. uh, campaign was fueled by the energy of young voters. Uh, unless you see something I don't see, I don't see that happening for Biden or Trump in the way that Bernie Sanders pulled that off. No, you're exactly right. And part of that was that Sanders was able to speak very authentically to a left-wing politics. Uh, that, you know, it's just not what Joe Biden's about, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Sanders is a democratic socialist. He is someone who is, a, you know, for a long time embraced these left-wing politics. And that's never been who Joe Biden is. He, he's more moderate. And he was successful in part because he was more moderate, right? You know, that's why he was able to win states uh, that, that Sanders wasn't uh, in, in the primaries in 2020. Um, but, yeah, you're right. I don't think young people are going to feel terribly excited about uh, uh, Trump or Biden as candidates, but I do think young people are going to come out and vote uh, if they, to the extent that they recognize the presidential contest as a proxy for the things that they're worried about: abortion, climate change, gun control, things like that. Uh, and so, I think part of what we're going to see too is left-wing organizations really trying to reinforce to people: look, this decision is not just about you know which old white guy is going to be in the White House; it's about which person is going to be signing things like you know, prospective bans on abortion nationally or prospective restrictions on gun ownership nationally. Like, those are the questions that the, that the left is going to try to make salient to young voters for 2024. Um, speaking of our presidential candidates, the last major presidential candidate, uh, as Philip Bump knows, uh, to announce his run for the White House in the state of Mississippi was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan had been governor of California but chose to go all the way to Mississippi, specifically to Philadelphia, where Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney were murdered to announce he was running for president. Now, why does the governor of California go to Mississippi to announce he's running for president? We know why. It was a shout to states. It was a nod to states' rights. In Mississippi this weekend, another guy, this one named Cornell West, uh, his campaign takes flight in Mississippi. He chose to go there, as Reagan did years ago, um, to, again, give flight to his presidential, his independent presidential campaign on the Green Party ticket. Uh, I'll ask Philip when we come forward how concerned President Biden should be about Cornell West and for that matter about Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, who's kicking up some dust as well. We'll talk about that in our remaining moments with Philip Bump when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Philip Bump, I've known Cornell West for over 30 years, and he has a huge, huge following uh, amongst young people. He, of course, is taught at some of the nation's preeminent universities. Uh, he is lectured at colleges I've never heard of in this country. He's always invited on college campuses to speak as this sort of rock star academic. Um, I'm wondering um, whether or not this um, uh, challenge from, from the progressive left 
by Cornell West should worry the White House. I'm wondering whether or not Robert Kennedy Jr., who was kicking up some dust running against Biden inside the Democratic Party, um, should concern um, the the administration. It's one thing to, to be planning for a fight against Donald Trump. It's another thing to ignore those persons who are challenging you on your own side of the aisle. Yeah, no, I, I would say there are probably three things of varying degrees of concern uh, that, that might emerge in the, uh, over the course of the next 12 months. The first is Robert Kennedy. Uh, I don't think the White House is terribly concerned about him. He's not really getting any traction in the polls. Most of the gains he's uh, achieved in terms of people viewing him positively come from Republicans. That's who's actually looking at his candidacy and, and approving of it. I don't think he's going to make much of a splash in the primaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cornell West is interesting, and I think his candidacy depends a lot on the resources that he has available. We've certainly seen in the past uh, times when third-party candidates akin to West have gotten uh, some traction in the polls. You know, obviously the 2000 race was close enough uh, that votes for Ralph Nader in Florida made the difference in that pivotal state for George W. Bush over Al Gore. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it certainly is possible uh, that a number of third-party candidates, West included, could siphon away enough votes from uh, Joe Biden to actually impact the election. It's hard to say. It's hard to say, you know, especially this far out in in terms of polling. Then there's this question of no labels, which is this organization which has some some sort of sketchy ties to Republican actors, uh, which has talked about putting forward a robustly funded third party candidate if it's Biden versus Trump next year, because they see those as as two uh, unappealing options. Polling suggests that would do more damage to Biden, and they may put a lot of resources into it. They may, you know, this is an organization that has money and and has an infrastructure that they can tap into, uh, probably more so in many regards than the Green Party, although the Green Party has ballot access. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think those are three things that that Biden is going to be concerned about, and I think those are three things that probably Trump doesn't need to worry about as much because they're probably less likely to affect him. Yeah. I should mention very quickly that uh, Cornel West will be a guest on this program on Monday. Monday, as I mentioned, is the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. We've got a, 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 an amazing show lined up for you next Monday, but one of those hours will be uh, a conversation with Cornel West, fresh off his campaign, taking flight in Mississippi this weekend. He'll join us next Monday uh, on this program for a full hour. For now, though, we thank Philip Bump, National Washington Post columnist, for joining us once again to, to talk politics with us. Uh, and we're in that season, so we will see what happens in the next 48 hours with this Republican debate tomorrow night with Donald Trump talking to Tucker Carlson. Donald Trump turning himself in in Fulton County on Thursday. Going to be a fascinating next 48 hours, politically speaking. Philip Bump, I know you'll be busy. We'll be busy here. We'll talk again soon, my friend. Thank you, sir. All the best to you.